All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 42 points or one-tenth of one percent. The S&P 500 last week was up about 15 points or four-tenths of a percent. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 267 points or 2.2 percent. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 9.7%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 13%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 19.1%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. So, I would say most of the news from this past week occurred on Friday. I don't know if we just want to dive straight in with the unemployment jobs report. Well, there's certainly the the economic data point that was we thought would get the most attention because it was if it was if it was I guess the expectation was you know maybe and I think us included is if the number was shall we say hotter than expected meaning unemployment had declined or the number of jobs that had been added was more than what was expected there was some speculation that that might be negatively received by the market, this perversion of the markets, as we've been talking about, that good news, quote-unquote good news, is bad news for the market and vice versa. So when the number, when the number was announced Friday morning, um, you know, immediately what, you know, what we were seeing, at least in terms of the futures, how the markets appeared to be based on trading prior to the market opening, it looked like this better-than-expected number was going to be interpreted negatively by the market. Uh, with unemployment falling to 3.5%, I believe now with this, with this latest r- report, we are now back to the unemployment rate that we had prior to COVID starting. That's correct. So it has taken two years and five months. Yep, thereabouts, mm-hmm. 
to get back to the unemployment rate that we were at prior to the, to the COVID hitting. I mean, for all our, our COVID hit in, es, in essence, the United States March of 2020. That's where it hit. You know, from an economic point of view, the markets declined a bunch in the in the month of March, and so we used March as the beginning of COVID. So initially, the markets were down. And during the day, there was a lot of trading back and forth. There was certainly some hand-wringing among some pundits that this number was, you know, basically the the job creation number was double what was expected. I think the expectation was – 260, I believe. uh, There was a – the range was between 75 and 325,000, and we came in at – uh, it increased 528. to 528, and the previous month's number was raised also. And I and I also wanted to add, when you look at the true, what I what I pay attention to being kind of the unemployment number nerd is the U6, which includes uh, unemployed plus all persons marginally attached to the labor force. What I consider the true unemployment rate actually came in at an all-time historic low of 6.7%. Now, it got to 6.8% during the tail end of the Trump administration. So this is a record all-time low for the U6 at 6.7% for July. Well, the good news is if you're looking for a job, there are still some that are out there. <laughs> so, Well, that well, that's right. That, that That's right. And And back to Jeff's point that what's good was bad and what's bad is good from an employment standpoint, this sent out the message, well, the Federal Reserve has more interest rate increases to do. And then a lot of the consternation on Friday and the hand-wringing, as Jeff was mentioning, is, okay, is it going to be a half of 1% increase in September? Or is it going to be back to the three quarters of a percent increase? But between now and then, we still have another jobs <laughs> it, reports. We've got it's two crazy. CPIs. We've got it's, core PCE. Is, yeah. We've got a lot of data between now and the next Federal Reserve it's meeting. Totally, there, totally worthless. A, totally worthless to be there's speculated. A lot, right. There's a lot of data. But if you look at it from a recession perspective, it's hard to make the argument for – we had this debate last week. Are we in a recession or are we not? When you have double the amount of jobs that you, you think you're going to get a report, it's, 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 it's harder and harder to make that argument that you're going to be in a, any kind of deep recession, maybe a recession light, if, as I kind of call it. Well, so, Joe, to, to your point, Joe, I would say if you're just paying attention to the employment data, then no, we're not in a recession. But if we're going by the true economic definition of two back-to-back negative GDP growth quarters, then yes, we are in a quote-unquote technical recession. Yeah. Do you know what it will be declared? Do you know when this will be declared a recession? Probably after the a election. year. After <laughs> yeah. the election. That's, That's when right. it will be declared a recession. <laughs> because how many victory laps were being uh, oh, made on Friday uh, with uh, with this unemployment number? I mean, President there was a, Biden came Ice out. Man. You know, Iceman, as we refer to him, with his, with his aviator the, glasses. Yeah, he Sorry. couldn't get to the podium fast enough to take a victory lap, <laughs> even being COVID positive. I mean, I thought I saw his arm in a sling because he was breaking it, patting himself on the back. <laughs> it, just like President Obama, who, who thought he was the messiah to economic growth post the financial crisis, Biden is in that same camp. It's just the timing of when he came into the presidency because there hasn't been a single policy coming out of out of the White House or the Biden administration that contributed to this employment picture and the employment numbers and all the jobs that are being created. It's strictly timing. So Obama got great timing. 
and Biden has gotten great timing. But, boy, like you said, Jeff, he was sprinting. I think he was winded. I saw some sweat coming off his brow from sprinting as fast as a 90-year-old man could to get to the podium. Yeah, of course, Jim. that was tongue-tongue. Well, well he that. came out of the basement so quickly, you know, because he'd been locked up because of COVID, kind of like when he was running for office. He had to put those shades on because the light was just blinding him. It was awesome. <laughs> so Sorry, I had, had some fun with that. I couldn't but, help it. But, but again, this was strictly oh, the dude. timing of when he took office coming out of a two-year global pandemic. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this uh, weekend's MoneyWise program, just recapping the unemployment and the employment report that came out on Friday, unemployment rate at 3.5%. U6, which is the true gauge of unemployment, hit a historic all-time low of 67 528,000 jobs created, well past expectations. But what I thought was very interesting in the employment report is that 85% of those jobs were created in the service sector. Now, we've been talking all year on the program that during COVID, there was a shift to consumer behavior away from services because of all the lockdowns and onto products. And this is what created some of the uh, supply chain log jams that we're still trying to unwind and why we saw a big chunk of inflation, monetary inflation, and a lot of the products. Well, Now that we're starting to see the consumers shifting their dollars away from products and into services, I think this this past employment report is just a glaring example of that consumer shift with 85% of those jobs going in to the service sector. And so will that will that help continue to alleviate the cost pressures and the supply chain pressures on the product side? Well, I'd heard a statistic. Uh, a gentleman that seen that talking about consumer prices, and he had he had said that service uh, services part of the CPI computation was five times the proportion to goods. So what it, what what his point was is that it, service and in, service inflation is still running high, and if if even if goods inflation comes down, one of those goods being gasoline, which also uh, a nice victory lap was being taken by the Biden administration this week on how much gas prices had come down, as if they had anything to do with it. Exactly. Um, So maybe we'll have this, goods inflation may come down, but how much is services inflation going to go up? And, And if this gentleman's analysis is correct, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, what happens next week on that CPI number? So we've had this huge run here in the last uh, since the middle of June, the the S and P is up fourteen percent from that low in June. 
just from the last Federal Reserve interest rate increase announcement, the market is up, the S&P is up 11% just here and well, we're less than a month since they announced, right? It was like mid, mid-July. Mm. We are way above the 50-day moving average. I'm going to get technical here for a moment. We're the moving far, average has turned up also. It's no longer moving, flat. The, the, it's, slope, the tail has the, moved up. The slope of the 50-day moving average has moved up, but we're way above it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, the, we're as far above the 50-day moving average right now as we've been really all year long. The, la- the last time Maybe we were go this March thirtieth, March thirtieth, which which would have been which was what that was in and around the last high that about mm-hmm. we were about forty six hundred was the last time that we were above the fifty day moving average as much as we are now. Well, we know what happened after that uh, a late March you know move up in the market. We prompt we went down a thousand points on the S and P between uh, late March into. Uh, mid-June. Now, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying we're getting ready to go down a 1,000 points. I'm just saying from a short-term perspective, the market has made a pretty substantial move. And potentially the impetus for a move back the other way could be a a much hotter than expected CPI number. Because there's there's a number of reasons why the market's up as much as it is. One of them, which, Kyle, I'm going to turn over to you to talk about earnings and what's been happening with earnings this quarter. Well, just looking at the earnings, so, and this is through Friday, so for the second quarter of 2022, 87% of the S&P 500 companies have reported actual results. 75% of the S&P 500 companies have reported a positive earnings per share surprise, and 70% of the S&P 500 companies have reported a positive revenue surprise. So, so far, 87% of the S&P 500 has reported earnings for the second quarter. 75% of that has reported positive earnings per share surprises. And 70% have reported positive revenue surprises. So the vast majority of the companies in the S&P 500 that reported have really hit the ball solidly over the fence, so to speak, to put it in baseball terms. Do those statistics say anything about... Uh, percentage of companies raising guidance or keeping guidance the same or lowering guidance? Yeah, so talking about earnings guidance, so for the third quarter of 2022, 42 of the S&P 500 companies have issued negative earnings per share guidance, and 30 have issued positive earnings per share guidance. So that's it. Everybody else has pretty much reported in line. And the rest of them stayed the same. Or, or pretty much in line. Have reported in line. Now, looking at a forward 12-month price earnings ratio, the S&P 500 through Friday is currently at 17.5. So this price earnings ratio is below the five-year average of 18.6, but it is slightly above the 10-year average of 17. So we're about a half a point above the 10-year average forward P.E. multiple, price earnings multiple for the S&P 500. So two things in my mind have fueled this rally that we've experienced here since mid-June. One is earnings that have come in better than expected, and a, a to a lesser extent, there haven't been as many companies lowering guidance. 
and the yeah. markets were expecting many more companies to lower guidance. So that's number one. Um, number two is the fact that um, <clears throat> the markets, I think, were expecting since the Federal Reserve's uh, last meeting, and I made this statement, too, on the show several weeks ago, uh, the markets were starting to price in uh, interest rate decre- decreases in 2023. In essence, saying that they they were they were interpreting the last Federal Reserve meeting and the statements made by the chairman to be dovish for the future. So I think those two things, earnings and the market's perception of a more dovish Fed, has fueled what is what is now the biggest rally um, in this in this bear market. We're out of the channel, this downward channel that I've been talking about for. For months, we're at we 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 got out of the channel a few weeks ago. We're still out of the channel. Now we're way above the 50-day moving average. We're still below the 200-day moving average, and the 50-day average has started to, to to move up. We're we're finishing earnings season. Um, the the jobs number's hot. I'm expecting that CPI number next week to be hot, and if it is hot. I'm not so sure that this this rally that we've had doesn't start to turn back the other way. And and now the narrative switches back to well, we had this hot jobs number and now we got another hot CPI number and we we're all saying, well, you know, the peak in inflation has come and it's passed and now it's going to be cooler, but no, nope, but still hadn't shown up yet because what's what I'm seeing in the earnings numbers is from an earnings point of view, things haven't cooled economically, and well, from a it, jobs number, things haven't cooled haven't yeah. cooled economically, and so that makes me wonder. Okay, so is this going to give the Fed more ammunition to potentially continue to raise interest rates longer than the market expects? And, and that's and so this sentiment that the market's traded up on here the last six weeks or so flips back the other way. Joe, I know you want to make a point. Well, no, I mean, when you're talking about contributing factors to the market rally, I mean, what is what has oil and gas done in the last month or exactly. so? Well, it's, it's decreased- also come down. So yep. that the, and, and when you're talking 42% of CPI directly correlated to oil and gas, with oil and gas coming down, although we said it at the beginning of the segment, you know, Biden taking a victory lap like their administra- his administration had anything to do with the price of a barrel of oil going down. He should be thanking the traders because it sure as heck wasn't OPEC. You know, they basically gave him the finger earlier this week with with increasing of production. Well, saying, I don't think no gas thanks. is down. Is gasoline down as much as a barrel of oil? No, but okay. I, I, I will say it's definitely down in some areas more than a dollar at the pump. So, I mean, it's still elevated. It's still Not higher here. than it was. <laughs> it still it still was higher than where it was when he took office for sure. And that's never going to get solved. We got to wait till January 2025 when we have the GOP back in the White House and actually can make policies that make sense for this country. But you know, the other thing about guidance as far as the second quarter earnings, and I know we're bumping up on a break, this was the quarter, I think, if a company had every excuse in the world to lower the bar, and they didn't. A very tiny number of S&P 500 companies lowered the bars for themselves, where others just kept the bar the same, and they had every scapegoat to use to lower it. 
So that, again, could be more positive for the forward earnings of the S&P 500 for the rest of this year. Let's take another commercial break. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. MoneyWise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's MoneyWise program, just kind of covering second quarter earnings, 87% of the S&P 500 has reported. Earnings have been very solid. Uh, P.E., the P.E. ratio is below the five-year average and just slightly above the 10-year average. So I'd say from a price-earnings multiple, the S&P 500 is not in a bad spot. We definitely have more room to run. But as I was saying before we went to the bottom of the hour break, when you've only got 42 companies of the S&P 500 of the 87% that have already reported earnings, bringing down third-quarter earnings estimates, only 42 companies – and 30 of them elevating it, everyone else kind of staying the same. I mean, this was the quarter to get all the junk, to do all the spring cleaning and get it thrown out the front door. And so far, so good. We haven't seen that. And so the well, market has responded positively to this. Go ahead, Joe. Well, I, I mean, I'm thinking from a portfolio perspective, and then what we've done a little bit the last week and the week before, or yes, we're looking at some, some positive signs, but we're not saying, hey, by the way, if you're sitting in a in, in a big chunk of cash, let's go deploy it in the market right now. Well, think, we're not saying back the truck up. We're not saying yeah. back the truck up. We're we're saying that you can start dipping your toe slowly in back into the equity pool, but don't do a cannonball into the deep end. I think that's your point. It's a very good point, Joe, because we have. We started adding allocation to the stock side of the portfolio two weeks ago. We did some more rebalancing uh, this past week in our portfolios of positions that we already owned. Plus, we also added two new positions, be it albeit half positions, in two technology companies, um, but just half positions because we do have that important CPI number that's coming out next week, and we're going to see if last month's CPI print was the peak at 9.1% and see if we can get it to start coming down. We know with oil and gas being 42% of the CPI and we've seen the prices come down, I would think that we would be seeing it have peaked at 9.1% for the month of June. Well, I mean, wouldn't, eight, you, wouldn't you, wouldn't if you it's feel that? If it's 8.9, is that, is that really that much? Oh, here comes, here comes sunshine. Wait, wait, more importantly, do we get a third victory lap in two <laughs> weeks? While well, yeah. we're on this racetrack analogy, you'd think that Biden would actually be at NASCAR, but since they're going green, what's going to happen to the, you know, Stock can, cars. Can his knees yes. take see a it? Third well, I, victory lap in two weeks. That's what I want to know. So we have Kyle talking about companies. There hadn't been that many companies that came out in the current quarterly earnings. 
throwing out, you know, everything in the kitchen sink to get it into their earnings. Well, I think one Intel did. Uh, not, oh, yes, they th- did. Th- th- there's not that, but there weren't that many companies that did that. That doesn't mean they can't do it later. Doesn't mean that uh, it's the turn that we we should start to see economically with all these interest rate increases are eventually going to filter their way through the economy and have an effect. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, Kyle, I've, I've sometimes jumped on Kyle a little too much, always talking about the money supply and how much cash is on the sidelines and this and that. And I think that there's some credence to what he's been saying. And that I think the reason that the, you know, the consumer has been able to hold up for as long as it has in these higher inflation environment and to continue to spend it the way that they have is because they had accumulated all this cash in the during the pandemic. Now it's not going to last forever. It just seems to me like this has just been pushed out a little bit more. The question we still get back to this question is: All right, when the consumer does start to stop, you know, decrease their spending or stop their spending, are we going to have a hard landing or is it going to be a soft landing? So we're we're all still wringing our hands over that. Us, well, all the pundits, you know, there's there's still, everyone's still wringing their hands. You know, are, is how much is the you know, when is it really going to show up in the consumer that they have you know, truly slowed their spending? What's happening right now to me in services is everybody's out taking a vacation because yep. they've been at home cooped up for two years. I, I mean, and all these service jobs, all these jobs that we just mentioned, there was a lot of service jobs added in this last number. How many of these service jobs are permanent jobs? How many of these service jobs are temporary jobs? How many service jobs go away at the end of the summer or it, when the consumer you know, finishes their vacation and looks at their, their savings account and said, well, heck, we got to get ready for Christmas. We can't take that. That next trip here at the end of the summer, maybe we're going to have to put that off till next year. How many, how many of these these service jobs that just came on get you know taken right back off again? If, if well, you look at if you look at last week, you, in, in to Jeff's point, you look at earnings. You look at Expedia crushed it, MGM crushed it. People are traveling, and from the service industry, from the entertainment industry, and leisure, they're making money hand over fist right now. It's great. Now, and the question is, when is that going to run out? You know, when, when, with when, all this demand, though, what does that mean? With all this demand, typically that means higher prices. And if, well, and if going back to this gentleman, if he's saying that that CPI computation is, you know, the services side far exceeds the good side, I'm, you know, I'm not in the camp to necessarily say that this this next CPI number ain't going to be higher than than the one last time. And if it is higher than the one it was last time, what are the probabilities the stock market is going to keep going higher? I would I, I would be very shocked if the CPI number is higher than nine one with just what we've seen in oil and gas as far as the cost coming down there. But you do raise a very important point, Jeff, about services making up a bigger chunk of the consumer price index versus products. But back to your your statement about the M two money supply, I was just taking a quick look. Now, before we began this year, we had over two trillion dollars in excess savings. That has been whittled down by about $700 billion. So the excess savings now stands at about $1.382 trillion. And I'm comparing that to where the M2 money supply was right before the pandemic hit, before everyone got locked in. So we still have a trillion three billion, a trillion point three billion of excess savings still 
in the M2 money supply through the what end was of June. M, what was M2 say in February Prior, of 20? Yeah. That's what I was looking at. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's see. We'll, we'll play some background music while Kyle looks for that. <laughs> yeah, so it was, about, it, it, was, it was in January of 2020 is about $5.9 trillion. And so through the end of June, it now stands at uh, $7.336 trillion. So there's still quite a bit of money sitting on cash in the sidelines. But here's something else we have to remember is we're coming to the end of August. What's getting ready to start happening? Kids going back to school. So I know that my youngest daughter is getting ready to start school. And so I think from a travel standpoint, a lot of families with kids, the travel season is ending. Now, that doesn't mean they don't go out to eat. You know, there's other services that are in the service sector. Uh, it's not just travel and leisure, but we are coming to the end of that. So now we're coming into the fall months and school time. So back to the point about consumer price index, with the travel season coming to an end, we could also, again, that'll have an end effect on consumer price index. So we'll see what the print is going to be, what the consumer price index is. That's the reason why the two new stocks we added to our individual stock and bond portfolio was only a half position because I wanted to see. I, we want to see what the CPI is and how the market's going to react. And before we get to the commercial break, I know Jeff was getting into the technicals. So for any of our home gamers, we see the technical line in the sand for the S&P 500 at 4170, 4,170 points on the S&P 500. If we can get two consecutive days of the S&P 500 closing above 4170, then that could just be more fuel to continue this bear market, or excuse me, this bull market to be moving higher if we can get two consecutive days above 4170 on the S&P 500. What are we, maybe it may take another. Well, we need the data, but we need the data to support it because Jeff said if we get a hot CPI number, then that means that the Fed has got further to go and we're back to a 75 basis point increase come September. There's possibly. an article I was reading and I don't know what the numbers are. What is the retracement we've seen on the S&P so far off the bottom? Does anybody know? Four, it was, you're talking about right here. Yes. In the last, what was 14%? Okay, 14%. All right. I mean, I, I was reading an article, and it, and it's, it was basically titled The Magic S&P 500 Number. That would mean this is a new bull market, not just a bear bounce. And they're going back to 1950 and saying there's never been a bear market rally that exceeded the 50% retracement and then gone on to make new cycle lows. So that's – but the number that Kyle's talking about, um, forty-one seventy. Well, forty-one seventy. It, it references okay. that number in the article okay, as okay. well. Well, so. if you if you want to take it into totality, totality. The, the bear market begins at the at the previous all-time high, which is the beginning of the year, and that was forty-eight eighteen. And I'm just taking an intraday number on the S and P five hundred. So we had a. From, we'll just just round it off. Twelve hundred points down. From 4818 to 3600, so to go 600 points higher, which would be a 50% retracement, as you're saying, Joe, that would be like 4240, and we're not we're not there. We're not quite there yet. We're yeah, not there it, yet. It, that's pretty good. The article says 40, roughly 4200. Well, right. 4231. So that that yeah. was quick math, Jeff, just shooting from the hip right good. there, folks. So, but 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 again, it, there's still a lot of data, and that. Yeah, super price index is going to be an extremely important number that's coming out next week to possibly determine the next 
you know, move for the market. So let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, I just wanted to do a little bit of clarification because we we're making some, some historical points about the S&P 500 right before break. So Joe, you found an article uh came out of Market Watch um from this past week just talking about the history of the market going back to 1950 that any time the market has been in a bear market since 1950 if there has been a 50% retracement off of the lows the S&P 500 has never rolled over and has gone down to make a new low in that bear market cycle, correct? And that statistic goes back 72 years. So and so the the number that we're looking at is somewhere around 4200 and so we're what we're saying is is that if the S&P based on this statistic if it holds true, if the S&P closed above 4200 at some point here this year that that would indicate that the 3636 low we saw in mid June could has a very high probability of being the low for this bear market phase doesn't mean that we couldn't go down to it it's just saying that based on this statistic over the last 72 years the probabilities are low that it would go below that that number. So we'll see. We'll see. But this is but this is the other reason why we're saying not to just be backing up the truck or doing a cannonball no. on the deep end of the stock pool. Why we're saying that if you have powder dry <clears throat> to start nibbling, start dipping your toes back into the equity pool, but doing it through dollar cost averaging and going slow and methodically. That's what we've been doing for the last two weeks, building up you know, increasing our stock allocation from the third lowest stock allocation in our moderate allocation portfolios that we've had in our 33-year history of, as a firm. And so as of Friday's close, we are at about a 42.5% stock allocation in our moderate asset allocation models. So obviously for our aggressive models, we have a higher allocation for our most conservative clients and our most conservative allocation, we have less than 42.5%. But we have been on the buy side for the last two weeks. But again, doing it slowly, methodically, dollar cost averaging in. That's why, again, for anyone that didn't catch it earlier in the show, the two new stock positions that we added to our individual stock and bond portfolios was just a half position. It was just a half position allocation because we do have the CPI consumer price index number coming out next week, and we have to see what that number is and how the market digests it. So, so speaking of portfolios, all right, and investing, 
Kyle did a little bit of research and found out an article about five ways to be a terrible, and I mean terrible, investor. And number one, which we talk about all the time on the show, is paying higher fees. And I'm going to hand it off to, to the brothers Davidson to take over from that. Well, I've always had the position that anyone that hires somebody to manage their manage their money, make the day-to-day investment decisions, shouldn't pay any more than 1% of assets. And if you're paying more than 1% of assets for a professional investment advisor, registered investment advisor to manage your assets, in my opinion, I believe that's too much. So we, I've, we felt this way for our entire history of our company, 33 years, 33 because years. our, because our top, our top, our top uh, management fee is 1%. Now, when we, when we started 33 years ago, I think 1% was very common amongst uh, registered investment advisors. It's now not as common. Um, no. It's especially in, in some of the lar- larger markets, like in our San Antonio or Austin, Dallas, Houston, those markets are typically 25, 50% higher for their minimum uh, investment management fees. Yeah, Kyle. One other thing that we've been noticing, especially when it comes to ADVs and ADV Part 2s, and this is for any listener that wants to do research. This on is a disclosure document that's required. And you can find it. Uh, you can Google Broker Check on Google and go to the FINRA website and to the SEC website. Something that Jeff and I and Joe, we've all started to notice with some of the newest filings of the ADV Part 2s from other registered investment advisors is instead of giving hard, concrete, transparent fee structures, they say, we're going to charge you between 1.5% to as high as 4%. And that's all they tell you. They don't give you the range. And that's just an example. They're giving you these ranges. They're not giving you the actual scale of how much assets you have under management or that you have that you have given this advisor to manage and what your actual fee is going to be. So transparency and some of these new ADV part 2s it's becoming a little fuzzy. It is. I don't know and how I, you feel about I, Jeff. Well, I, as chief compliance officer, this is one of one of my duties to take care of the compliance aspect of the business. And this is something that's popped up here in the last year. And I don't know why the SEC is allowing these advisors to get away with this. I can tell you, uh, as long as I'm Chief Compliance Officer of Davidson Capital Management, we're going to continue to publish our fee schedule precisely as we have for the last 33 years. It's on our website. It's on all our ADV disclosures. And we're not going to change that. So I don't know what rule what rule these other advisors are relying on to now uh, obscure what they're charging. I'm sure this is some kind of competitive advantage they're trying to have because with all these disclosures we have to make, <clears throat> it's very easy to go look at what your you know what your competitors charging, what what your competitor might be invested in, it's what's your competitor's investment philosophy. But that's that's required disclosure. These are all required disclosures. So I don't understand why the SEC is allowing this. And uh, next time I have a chance to ask an examiner that question, I'll have to ask him why. Well, we always talk about knowing what you own on the portfolio. In your por- in your portfolio, you need to know what you're paying too. By the way, right. So if you talk about disclosures, you should know exactly what you're paying your advisor. Or if you're doing a review of your own investments and you're doing it yourself, what are the underlying expenses and the funds that you're buying and you're picking yourself? 
If well, you are and, buying and, mutual funds or ETFs. And if you ask your advisor that question, you're not getting a straight answer. You really need to start questioning why. Why am I not getting a straight answer and not getting the runaround? And the fastest way to add money to the bottom of the line of your portfolio isn't just in the investment performance. It's in paying lower fees. And I know we're coming up to the top of our break. I mean, Joe, I knew that we couldn't get a five-point <laughs> article in with just five minutes left to go as long-winded as we are. So I know we've been talking about this article for the last few shows. So on next weekend's show, we're going to have to get to the other four points of the five points that make someone a bad investor. And so we'll have to cover that on next weekend show. So all listeners tune in. I promise we'll get through the other four points. So with that, we're coming up to the top of our break. So we're going to take the break, go into the news. When we come back from the news, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. You MoneyWise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to MoneyWise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education and the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what 
what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors Again, goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry, where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the Department of Labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards Securities and Exchange Commission why don't you put these standards in as well and Mary Jo White the head of the SEC makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place, but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years, so why is it just being 
intensely studied over just the last couple of months. Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story the no, you didn't check the clock the 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 real world example I'm going to give and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, 
and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha, got it, understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure, why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers and different offices at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98, 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to 
relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker. If he or she holds a Series 7 securities license, if he or she does, then it's it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And... It's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds, as a fiduciary, we have to go with government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it, I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. 
So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, In every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, It's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue-sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. 
because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid. Let's, let's get some money on the sidelines. Let's get some cash on hand. And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid, because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio. We could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, the, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no. no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. the part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We and, and he asked him, "Would you give me the account?" Well, sure, we would. And he said, "Would you like to know what my experience is?" And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ, and he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show about just the number of don't don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you think making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know I will I do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and Financial planning has has really become a, a really booming industry. And there are designations, a certified financial planner, which is a very difficult designation to get. You have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But... You have to be very, very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask, as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission? And you need to ask those questions. And if they're not giving you a straight answer, that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away. You, as a prospective client, have the right to ask a straight-up straight question and get a straight-up answer. Ask them, do you have your Series 7? If they have a Series 7, pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions. And that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard, if they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, Without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission. And being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, and you know what we've also 
talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check and that will take you to the FINRA website and FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line is dotted, you have to utilize all the the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in From high the school, principal. yeah, the principal. in, in high office. school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have, going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Well, I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio, and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets, you can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.